And so you can turn in your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 will be what we look at. And again, today we're talking about giving thanks for the church. Uh, yesterday, and maybe you're kind of like me, my Thanksgiving rituals tend to revolve around sports. There's a lot of football watching uh, in our household. And if I can get away and sneak and, and watch a, a score of a game, you know, it always just is something that I, I find entertaining. But one of the things I, I enjoy is when they give you those useless facts that I don't know if you're really the better for knowing it, but you know, it'll be something random of when was the last time that somebody rushed for 200 yards in a game? Or when was the last time this team went undefeated only to lose in the last regular season game? And I was thinking, what would be some fun, useless facts about your pastors? And I didn't quiz Cody or Rob ahead of time. I'll let them do that next time they preach. But I'm going to give you a useless fact about David Cottle, okay? There's only a handful of people in this room that know the secret about me. But I have a confession to make. I went to a military high school, Texas Military Institute. And it's not what you're thinking. I think most of the time when you hear that, you're thinking it's like a military boarding school. There's an old Tom Cruise movie called Taps where, you know, these delinquent kids get shipped off by their parents because they they can't raise them up at home. That was not my case. Uh, This was actually a legitimate high school. It just happened to have the name Texas Military Institute. It's kind of similar to Texas A&M. You know, the Corps of Cadets was a a big piece of it, but not everybody was, was going a military route. Clearly, I did not go that route. But among our graduates, and we always prided ourselves at our school of those who had gone ahead of us, but none was more famous of an alumni of TMI in San Antonio, Texas, than one particular individual who had a statue on campus, Douglas MacArthur. He was the the commanding general. Here's a photo of him. And this is actually the final scene, if you're a history buff, of World War II. And so the war against Nazi Germany had already ended previously that summer, but the war and the Pacific Front dragged on for another couple of months. And on September 2nd, 1945, an alum of my high school, Douglas MacArthur, sat at this table across from the Japanese authorities and negotiated the surrender that would ultimately end the war. And when you think about this image, you don't see the losing side. You see the winners, and you only see really a fragment of the winners. The Allied forces were much more than just the Americans pictured in that particular angle that we have. But when a war ceases, and we even saw it this week with a negotiated ceasefire, people who were once enemies have to now figure out how to be reconciled in their differences, right? There's a new order that's established, and those on the losing side have to submit to the winners, And the future looks bright, right? We look at those things and we see a new identity, a new hope on the horizon. And as much as um, we can look at our own history and we can appreciate these times where war has ended in peace, there is no greater reconciliation, no greater victory that has occurred than what we just celebrated with the Lord's Supper. When Christ gave his life up for us on the cross, and he was risen from the dead, the greatest victory was accomplished. One that reconciled each and every one of us back to God in a right relationship with him, but also reconciled us who were his enemies 
by our own nature and made us children of God through adoption in Christ. This is what we're going to look at this morning. When you look at the letter to the church in Ephesus, they have an incredible history. And uh, it's actually only summarized in a brief chapter of the book of Acts. But this was a city where, by all accounts that we have through what Luke recorded, Paul spent at least two years, more than likely closer to three years, in the city of Ephesus. And it was a leading city of trade. If you kind of are familiar with a geography map and you look at Turkey, just south of Istanbul on the coast would have been the ancient city of Ephesus. And Acts chapter 19 talks about these radical events that happened in that church as a result of the gospel coming to them. The city was, was turned upside down through radical conversions, incredible miracles done through Paul that gave testimony to the Spirit of God now among these Gentile believers in the city of Ephesus. And Paul writes this letter more than likely when he's in prison or under house arrest in Rome. And writing back to this church in Ephesus, he gives half of his letter devoted to reminding them of the gospel they've received in Christ. And the last half of the letter is given with commands or urging them to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. And today for us, what we are going to look at is some of these early gospel reminders that Paul gives. We're going to focus in on chapter 2. And after he spends the majority of his time in chapter 2 talking about how sinful we once were, but yet through Christ, how we've been reconciled back to God, he closes this chapter with the view of who are the new people of God, his church. So we're going to look this morning at Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 22. If you'll stand with me, since this is the word of God for our instruction, we'll read it together. We stand in reverence to it. And let's read this passage together. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we read words, and without the Spirit giving us understanding or bringing conviction, God, they really have no lasting impact on our life. So, Father, we pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would speak clearly through it for our instruction. But, God, I pray that what I speak this morning through your word, God, it would pierce our hearts, not because it, as Cody reminded us, not because it's our own wisdom, but it's your wisdom. God, it is the eternal truth of how all things have been brought together through Christ, and that now our lives are counted as significant to you. Because we have placed our faith in him. So we pray that Christ would be exalted as we study your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Paul gives this beautiful picture of the church. And he uses three word pictures that we're going to dive into this morning. But the first two will combine into our first point. He uses a word picture of being a citizen 
and of being part of a family. So we thank God for the church, which is his kingdom family. In verse 19, he starts by saying, you are no longer strangers or aliens. And we're not talking about outer space aliens. It's another term for a sojourner. And so you can think of it as someone that is going through a land that they don't belong to. And he's speaking in relation to their salvation, that formerly their relationship with God was that they were strangers to him. They were foreigners in his creation. They were separated from God by their sin. But he says as a result of their faith and what Christ has done, they're no longer those things. And he gives two word pictures for this early church to put hope and confidence in. He says first that they are fellow citizens with the saints. And if you go back to ancient Rome, their citizenship was derived through an emperor who we would call Caesar. And Caesar would have a title that he would assume on himself, Curios, or Lord. It was a divine title that's given to an emperor. And there are many cultures, even today, you look at places like North Korea that derive some type of divine given authority on those who are ruling them here on earth. And it was no different in the Roman Empire. When they looked at Caesar, they viewed him as a Lord, one that had divine rule. And so Paul here is reminding them that we don't claim Caesar as Lord, we proclaim Christ alone as Lord. And so now all of a sudden we are butting heads with a Roman citizenship that we may have you two here on earth with a heavenly citizenship that we've been made a part of through Christ. And so the early church, and Paul is reminding them, saw themselves in a sense as dual citizens, but with their greater citizenship, pointing them back to the kingdom of God. And the reason being is that Jesus himself not only stands over, but at times he stands against any earthly rule that will come against him. Paul would remind the, the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that there is no other name under heaven that is greater than the one of which all things will be made subject to, which is Christ himself. And so Paul and other New Testament writers are really strategic in how they address these early churches with their word choice. And so reminding these people that they are citizens with the saints goes much beyond just viewing themselves right now as having to sojourn or be aliens to this world. But it's a heavenly reality. And really what Paul's getting at is you are no one's second-class citizen doesn't matter who you think you belong to in this earth. You belong to the ultimate citizenship that matters, which is the kingdom of God. And he urges the church as he continues through his letter to prove their citizenship by walking in a manner or living in a manner that proves that they are citizens of God's kingdom and not just citizens of Rome. In the early history of Ephesus, when you read through chapter 19 of Acts and you see this testimony. The reality is these citizens of Rome, because of their faith in Christ, really turn the city upside down and the entire city is going to come out against them because of their faith. This is one of those accounts in Acts where it refers to Christians not as Christians, but as followers of the way. They viewed them as a sect, a group of people that really was seeking to destroy 
the normal way of living, and it sounds very similar to our calling, we are to live as counter-culture Christians in this time. When we think of our own day and age, one of the greatest challenges of every generation of believers is to answer that question, what will be said of us? Will we be living more as citizens of earthly kingdoms, subjecting ourselves to earthly rule at the sake of Christ? Or will we live our greater citizenship, what the Bible instructs us to live, as ambassadors for Christ? This political language would have, I think, encouraged the church to look at a purpose and an identity that Christ had given them through their salvation. But there's a second word picture that he gives us in verse 19, and he he says, you're members of the household of God. And we looked at this last week in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus talks about those who do the will of God are his mother, brothers, and sisters. And so we are made part of the family of God through our faith in Christ. But in Ephesus, it was a city of trade, and so there would have been a lot of wealthy people. But more than likely, there would have been in place the ancient system of slavery. And it wasn't anything really close to what we've witnessed in our own country's history in the not-so-recent past. But biblical slavery, sometimes in your Bibles would be described as a bondservant. It was someone who willingly subjected themselves to serve at the behest of another person. But it was for a limited period of time. Normally, it'd be for seven years under Roman law that you could Give yourself over as a bondservant to an individual. And sometimes it would be because you were too poor on your own means to take care of yourself. So you served another family as their servant. The Bible would use this term slave to show that you had subjected your rights to another. And if you think about what Paul's describing here, and he actually picks up the theme in chapter 6 as he's ending his letter. And he urges slaves and masters to view their relationship with one another radically different because of the gospel. And so here he's using the terminology that even though you may be a bondservant in earthly terms to another person, you in God's eyes are counted equal with them as part of the family of God in the household. And what a picture of what Christ has brought together. And when this early church, if they were slaves to others, they could be encouraged by the fact that because they identify with Christ through their faith, they're counted as part of the family of God, then they will be treated by God as God would treat his own heir. And how did he treat the son? With infinite love. And Paul is pointing the church to rest in the same assurance. So he gives these two early pictures of citizenship and family And the beauty of how Paul writes this is that he's not trying to draw out that they're distinct roles, that one of us maybe is a citizen and one person is a a house of God. He's he's saying that they're simultaneous. So your identity and relationship to God is both one of citizenship and one of family. Every citizen is part of the kingdom of God, and every member of God's family is a citizen of his kingdom. So there's a lot of things we can devote our lives to. There's a lot of allegiances that demand things from our life that we can devote all of our days to serving. We ourselves can fall prey to idolizing citizenship, regardless of the country that we live in. 
and fail to give honor or fail to live in a kingdom perspective that there's a greater citizenship that we are called to. But we can also idolize family. And we can love blood relatives that deny Christ better than we can those that are part of the household of God. And how do we remind ourselves of that? Well, look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. If you flip over there, this is on the heels of Paul getting ready to go back to Jerusalem where he faces his arrest. In his final address to the elders of the church in Ephesus, he gives them this beautiful speech, but he encourages them as the leaders of Christ's church in verse 28 to pay careful attention to their own lives. But look at how he ends it. Verse Acts 20, 28. Talking to these elders, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. When we think of the church, the way we avoid idolizing earthly family or idolizing country or citizenship over Christ is that we remind ourselves Again, the Lord's Supper table, that we were purchased, we were bought, we were made part of the body of Christ through his blood. Put simply, God exchanged my life and your life for his own son. What greater thing is there to give thanks to God for than that? But he goes on in these next verses. In chapter 20, he starts to speak of the temple Verses 20 through 22, he says, You are also built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is our third, our second point, is that we thank God because he dwells in the church. And when he uses this temple language, there are probably two temples that would easily come to mind for this church in Ephesus. The first that probably comes to our minds, if we're familiar with the Old Testament history and the religious background that Jesus himself came from of Jewish heritage, was the temple in Jerusalem. And we'd be right to assume that way. But we go back to Acts chapter 19, there was another temple that Ephesus was familiar with, the temple of Artemis. At the time, it was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which is no small list to get on, right? Like Forbes, richest people. But Paul in his description, as he's encountering these people in Ephesus, as he reminds them that it is just a temple made with human hands, built to a false god, the female Greek god, Artemis. And in verse 35 of chapter 19, there's even this strange description by the people that not only do they view themselves as having been entrusted with this temple to this false god, Artemis, but that they had this sacred stone that fell from the sky. And Peter, again, his, his own reminder would be that his confession would change his name to being a rock. And Paul is here reminding us that this sacred rock from the sky, the stone, is not what we look to. We look to the true rock, the cornerstone, on which the temple of God is centered, which is Jesus himself. And so, yes, the temple in Jerusalem, but I think 
for these people in Ephesus, when they hear this temple language, they're looking at the own idolatry that they were brought out from, and they now are reminded that they are made part of a better temple, a truer temple, and the stone which maybe they used to worship as part of their false system of beliefs is now replaced with the true and living stone, the cornerstone, which is Jesus himself. And so this new temple, Paul talks about in verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we could be right to assume that prophets here is referring to Old Testament prophets, but I think with the way that it's placed after apostles and then how Paul will later on in chapter 4 speak of how the church has received not only apostles, but prophets and shepherd teachers, that I think we'd also be right to assume that he's pointing us to this new generation of which the church is built upon. It's not only those who were with Jesus as his apostles, the disciples, and Paul himself, but it's also these prophets that God has raised up. And it's reminding the people that the foundation of which they are built upon is the word of God that they have received. But it's not just that they're the foundation. The foundation is good, but in this ancient architecture, the thing that really helped the structure be joined together and at least pointed where everything was centered was what was the cornerstone. And so Paul reminds them that, yes, you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets upon their testimony and what they are teaching you about what Christ has said and instructing you of how you're supposed to live your life. But he's reminding them that this cornerstone is the thing which the church itself is oriented upon we look to jesus as the first and the last and in the same way that a building would rise or fall based on the design hinging on that cornerstone being in the right place and being of the right material and, and strength the rise or fall of the church is not dependent upon us it's dependent upon christ and if christ has been risen from the dead if he's conquered sin and death, then his church is indestructible. The same reminders he was giving Peter. Yes, the church will be built upon your confession, Peter, but it's not based on you. It's based upon me. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church because it cannot prevail over me. And so what God is building through a word of testimony is ultimately what overcomes the enemy of Christ, Satan himself. Look at how the story ends in Revelation 12, 11. And John writes, and he says, they, the saints in Christ, have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives not even unto death. And so the temple is a significant picture, but it's not just a structure, right? When we were showing the kids that ornament of the picture of Northwest, we're not looking just at the temple as a, structure symbolizing what christ has done there's something that is in the temple it's the spirit of god and so if we are built into the temple and god's spirit now dwells there paul is showing us that all the word pictures that we saw throughout the old testament and all the things that ancient israel experienced through the wilderness with the tabernacle and solomon building a temple for the lord have found their fulfillment in christ and that ultimately it was all pointing to how we are made part of the temple of God through the body of Christ. We're entering that time of season where we remember the Old Testament idea of tabernacling would be that God's presence dwelling among us, and it culminated in Jesus dwelling among his people. 
We call it Advent because it's looking ahead to when Christ descended from heaven and took on flesh and dwelt among us. As we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, where previously, even in the tabernacle and the, the temple, only the high priest could draw near to the presence of God and only once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. Now Jesus, God himself, comes in the flesh. He's touching fallen humanity. He's healing us of sickness and disease. He's allowing us to enter his presence and fellowship with him. And he's showing us that through the death that he would die on our behalf, we will finally be made part of having full fellowship with God restored back to him. And this term dwelling would signify it's a permanent home. This isn't the tabernacle where they picked up the tent and took it with them. God is establishing for himself a dwelling place through his spirit that will be our lives. And, and Paul even himself uses two forms of language when he talks about the temple. We look in passages like 1 Corinthians 6 where he speaks that our body individually are temples of the Holy Spirit who is within us. And so we should glorify God in our body. But here Paul is trying to show us that this collection of individuals where the Spirit dwells individually is marked by the presence of God dwelling among us and in us and through us corporately. And so we look at these incredible word pictures, citizenship, family, temple. The question for us is we can give thanks for these things, but how do we demonstrate our thanks? Well, we demonstrate thanks by being a part of Christ's church. We demonstrate thanks through the church. And so the natural conclusion for Paul when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians is to say, based on all of these incredible things that Christ has done for us, everything that his salvation has achieved, how can we not want to live for him and live for him together in godly community? And so as we said, ver chapters 1 through 3 of this letter really focus on that foundation pointing us back to Christ, but the rest of the book is encouraging us in view of our salvation to live in a way that honors God. And as we look at this final point, I want to look a little bit earlier. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 10. Peter, Paul, excuse me, describes us as God's workmanship. He says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship here carries with it the idea of being a masterpiece in art, something that God has designed for himself to reflect the beauty of what he intended it to reflect. And he talks about here, we, plural, are his workmanship, individually created in Christ for good works, and that these things have been planned long beforehand that we should walk in them. And as I was thinking about how, how could we really imagine what this looks like when we speak of the church and generations of believers who are all doing good works but made part of the masterpiece that God is creating, I thought of this painting that I've seen in the past at the Art Institute of Chicago. Maybe you've seen it. it it's been popularized in the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's not an endorsement of that film. I'm just saying it's in it. But Georges Seurat, a, a French painter, uh, painted this painting. I think we have an image of it. 
a Sunday on La Grande Jatte. Maybe you've seen this before. If you've seen Ferris Bueller, you've probably seen the effect that it's trying to draw out. And the scale of this, it's probably in reality, I don't know how large our screens are, but in person, the painting itself is seven feet by 10 feet. So you can imagine someone painting something as large as our projector screens that we have behind us. But the technique that Surratt used was called pointillism. And he would literally take individual dashes of different colors of paint and just one simple stroke, almost like a check mark, make this image seven feet by 10 feet. And over time, it turns into the composite of what we see. But the beauty of this, of this painting and, and what Ferris Bueller Jay's Day Off draws you into is that as you get closer and closer to the painting, you begin to see the individual marks that the artist had made that create the whole painting. What better way to imagine the masterpiece, God's workmanship, the church, than through that? That your individual life, even though you may reflect upon it and think it's just a brief brush stroke, when we back up and we see God's perspective, that we all are contributing to the good works which God had prepared beforehand, we see the beauty of the church for what it inherently is. We see a masterpiece that God is creating through individual lives that make up the whole. And so here, Paul gives us these two word pictures to remind us of what some of these works look like. So there's two ways, I think, bringing together our first two points that we can demonstrate our thanks to God through the church. And the first is through our relationships with one another. We're his kingdom family. So he gives us those ideas of being citizens, of being members of the household of God. And so when we look at the church, we understand in the relationship with one another, if we've been reconciled to God, then we've also been reconciled to one another. So there's no differences in our relationships between me and anyone else who is part of the body of Christ that cannot be resolved through what Christ has done in the gospel. And we have deeper, more meaningful or lasting relationships with the church, or we should, than maybe even some of our own blood relatives who deny Christ. And that's difficult for us to understand, but the purpose of the church is to demonstrate the beauty of God and the relationship that we've received through Christ. It culminates in Paul's letter here in Ephesians in chapter five, where he describes a husband and wife relationship as the way that Christ loves and cares for his church. And so when we see the purpose of our own relationships, we understand the importance of living in unity and love with one another. The same with the idea of citizenship. When we view ourselves, we understand that we are great commissioned Christians and we are global in the citizenship of heaven. And whether or not we can challenge ourselves to think this way, I have to remind myself that I have more in common with a believer in North Korea, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, China, India, the Sudan, than I do with my next door neighbor who denies Christ. And if we would understand that this global community of what God has brought together, we would understand what it means that when one member of the family suffers, we all suffer together. And how we give, how we contribute to the mission of God would be fulfilled on a global basis. We don't look to our own needs, but we look to the needs of others around us. 
So one of the primary ways that we demonstrate thanks to God is through our relationships with one another. Secondly, and this is as much individual as it is corporate, but we demonstrate thanks through the church by living in holiness. And so if God's spirit dwells within us, as we're told, we are a temple of God made and designed by him with Christ as the cornerstone, then holiness ought to be a mark of his church. So individually, I strive to fight sin in my life as strongly as I can. But then among us, we encourage one another to not have any mention of something immoral or unholy named among us because of whose we are. And when it comes to fighting our appetites for sin and, and not letting ourselves be controlled by the old flesh, I think we go back to what Paul reminded those elders in Acts chapter 20. If you find yourself, and this is where I find myself many days, struggling with the temptation that seems too great to overcome, we do look that Christ has provided a way out. But more than that, we remind ourselves that the power of the blood of Christ to purchase me and rescue me from my sin and the wages of my sin, which would have been my eternal death and separation for God, are more than enough motivation to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And I think there's a correlation as we understand what Christ has, has paid for my life, the debt that I owed, but that he willingly paid for me, then sin is suddenly diminished in the balance of the scales because Christ is weightier. And what he has done is more valuable. So if we want to know how to slay sin in our own life, we ought to continually remind ourselves of the suffering that Christ did. I think that's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. It's a tangible picture of the suffering he endured so that we could be made the righteousness of God. And so relationships and holiness are the marks of the masterpiece that God's creating through his church. But where it leaves us is that we don't hold up a mirror and see ourselves. We see Christ in his church. And so the significance of the church is not what we can do for the Lord, but in what he has done for us. Think back to that opening picture where Douglas MacArthur was, was signing the peace agreement between the allies and Japan. A lot of times, we maybe falsely assume that the, the value of peace after war is in how the future plays out. So if things don't go according to plan or they don't seem like it was really all worth it, we lose hope and we think maybe that war wasn't really worth fighting. But the gospel reminds us that the value of peace is reflected in the cost of the lives that it required to gain victory. And so our value as the church, it doesn't rise or fall because of us. Our achievements are at times lack thereof. Right? We have failed and we will continue to fail the Lord in a number of ways. But our value as his church is eternally fixed, is precious to God because of what it cost him to attain. He gave up his own son in exchange for you and I. So how could we not want to thank God for his indescribable gift? I want to close as the worship team's coming up, just praying over us a prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. But as we close, the 
the invitation to respond this morning is to really demonstrate our thanks to God through his church. And so there may be some of you today who you do not have a church home. And the greatest way that you can demonstrate thanks to God for your salvation is being a part of God's people, being a part of his local church. But there's some of us, and just as we discussed during the Lord's Supper, we have sinned against one another. This may be a time for us to reflect on our own relationships within the body and really examine our own hearts and ask the Lord, is there anything in my own life that's creating disunity in the body that's a disgrace to what Christ has sacrificed in order to make the church his own? Or maybe it's this final one. What are you giving your life to over and above the church of Christ? Is there something that when you look at your checkbook or you look at your account online, you see that you have valued earthly treasure or earthly things more than a kingdom citizenship mindset. And even though we want to see good things happen in amongst us in this country, have we exchanged glory for ourselves over and against what the glory of God demands of his church, that we would be his people? Let's stand. I want to read this prayer over us this morning, and then we will respond. Pastors will be at the front. We would love to pray over you, or if there are things you want to visit about, if how you need to respond to what you've heard this morning, we would love to visit with you. But this is a time for us to worship and continue remembering what Christ has done for us. So, Father, we come before you. God, my prayer for us as the people at Northwest is what Paul prayed over the church in Ephesus. God, to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the great power that is at work within us, God, may glory be in your church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. God, we pray that this would be something eternal, not because of our own doing, but because it's your design, your plan that you hold all things together. Bring glory to your son. We pray these things in Jesus.